for the simplest terms, it operates on an algorithm that is uh, can't be changed, that it allows for the mining of additional Bitcoin on a very scheduled procession over the next hundred years when the final Bitcoin will be mined and so created. And that schedule is, it's very well stated as opposed to, and it can't be changed, as opposed to the schedule of creation of money and expansion of money supply at central banks, which is not very well stated, it's not controlled. And so as we saw in the pandemic, where we had trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars created out of thin air, injected into the world, into the market, that is why everything costs more because of the expansion of money supply and depositing money directly into people's accounts. And so everything got to be more expensive because there's more dollars around to buy it. And so if there's more dollars around to buy it, then there's more dollars around to buy Bitcoin too. And so if you have Bitcoin, it's not that Bitcoin's price is changing. It's that the dollar's ability to get some is changing. It's diminishing. And so you need more dollars to get some because the constant is Bitcoin. The one that's moving is the dollar. All right. Another episode of The Block Reward on tap. Our guest today is James Lavish. James is an expert in terms of a problem that he likes to describe as the debt spiral. And so James and I are going to have a conversation about the escalating piles of debt that are being accumulated by governments all around the world and what it means for their ability to sell that debt on the open market. And this is a problem that is intimately intertwined uh, with interest rates and, and not very well understood by sort of the general public. And the TLDR of this problem is there aren't really a lot of appetizing paths out and just about all of them involve our money becoming worth less over time and probably at a rate that is going to speed up. And this is where, you know, there are different kinds of conversations that happen around Bitcoin. Some of them have to do with the innovation and some of them have to do with the philosophy or the theory of it. And some of them have to do with the jet, the actual state of the world today and and the, and the way economies work and so james has some really important ideas about what's happening right now where he thinks this is all going to go and why bitcoin is a critical thing for people to have in their toolkit as a way to protect their wealth and protect themselves from the inevitability of further currency debasement so i hope you enjoy james is a speaker i'm thrilled to have on somebody that i consume a lot of his ideas and enjoy greatly and uh, thrilled to be able to share some of his ideas with our listeners. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Our guest this week is James Lavish. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Scott. Happy to be here. There's a spectrum among uh, sort of different kinds of conversations you find in Bitcoin, and some of them are sort of more philosophical. Some have to do with energy and engineering, and uh, there's a great place for people who really understand the way money works and what the role of uh, the ever-expanding monetary supply and government debt has to do with why Bitcoin is important. And James falls into that category. And so we're going to have a little bit of a conversation today for our listeners about that. Uh, maybe, James, before we dive into uh, dive into the meat, uh, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I am an institutional investor. I've been an institutional investor for almost 30 years in uh, investing in the hedge fund and private equity space uh, started. My first job was a clerk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange back in 19. And then I ended up transitioning into uh, into the hedge fund space, doing some arbitrage and uh, and merger and, and risk uh, risk management and risk arbitrage, risk management uh, roles. And so I find myself in the Bitcoin space kind of by way of an institutional investor curious about um, the asset and how it was it's different than every other asset that I've ever seen and uh, and that led me down the the, the rabbit hole uh, back in 2020 and so here we are a few years later and I'm I'm deep in it I'm always amazed by people like yourself who do have the institutional background and you have seen something in Bitcoin that most of your former colleagues probably so far has eluded them. So what was it about your own experience or something about Bitcoin that intrigued you in the first place or, or helped it make sense for you? Yeah, well, 
you know, when you're an institutional investor and you're in that system and that system has benefited you greatly all these years, it's difficult to look outside that system and look into it and see the problems. So it's difficult to step outside and then look back in and see the problems. So during the pandemic, I was noticing a lot of problems. And so one of them clearly was coming to the forefront was the manipulation of money and just how intense uh, and just the magnitude of that manipulation from central bankers across the world. And so I had heard about uh, this thing, Bitcoin, years back, you know, and Scott, one of my greatest mistakes, worst trades ever was to ignore Bitcoin. Back when I had heard about it in 2015, 2017, I just, I was just like every other, you know, uh, ignorant institutional investor thinking, well, this is just, it, it's some Ponzi scheme. It, it's worthless. And I had gone and asked some of the experts in my, in my world, technology analysts and portfolio managers, and they all wrote it off. They just said, oh, it's worth nothing. There's no underlying value. It's a Ponzi scheme. Don't put your money in it. You'll wind up losing everything. And back then, you know, 2015, 2017, it wasn't as easy as it, it is now just to sign up on Coinbase and just go get your account and go get uh, a little bit um, even online. And so I ignored it. And so when we looked at it back then, and when I looked at it back then and talked to people about it, it was clear that they, everybody in my world virtually just saw it as some sort of crazy risk asset, uh, something wild that may or may not take form, take shape and, and take off. And so super risky way out in the, on the, on the risk curve. And, uh, and so not something that was necessary because back then, you know, we, you're younger than I am, but I lived back in the seventies and early eighties when we had super high inflation and we felt that problem with the money. We blamed it on oil. We blamed it on wars. But the reality was it was that manipulation of money and that, and that decoupling of, of the U.S. dollar from gold, um, the, the, the formal leaving of the gold standard by Nixon in, in 1971. And so we started feeling the effects of that when I was a child. But then we got into this period of great expansion, the internet, the online uh, World Wide Web, all of the uh, online companies. And, uh, and then we got into, of course, it was a bubble and that burst. And then, but we had, we had money pour in, we had zero interest rate policy. We had a housing bubble that burst. We had money pour in, we had zero interest rate policy. And so we just had this continued expansion of the money supply. And when you're in that world, you're benefiting from that. And so it's hard to see. And that's really, that was my mistake. I, I, I didn't see it and I didn't recognize it, but now I do. There's, it reminds me of a great quote that's something to the effect of, it's difficult for a man to learn something. His paycheck depends on him not knowing. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. And that, and so when you see, you hear people like Jamie Dimon dismiss it, when you hear uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger dismiss it or ridicule it, they know what it is. They know that it could be something very important, but it, it also is tremendously disruptive to their businesses, their investments. And so just exactly what you say, it pays them to ignore it. So when, when you're trying to relay what you've learned about Bitcoin to your colleagues and, and people who have an understanding of financial markets... How do you explain to them what Bitcoin is? Well, I mean, with everybody, I start with how broken the money system is, just how broken it is that we're depending on central bankers and and the uh, the movement of cost of capital, liquidity. Um, and then, of course, the the simple explanation is you go to just the sheer amount of leverage there is in the system across the world. Now, let me make it clear, Scott, I don't think that debt in and of itself is a terrible thing. If used responsible, responsibly, it, it can be a great thing because if you have an interest in something, you want to build a business and you have a great idea, but you just don't have enough capital to execute that. Well, you could get some capital and then borrow the rest. And all you're doing is you're, 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 you're pulling future productivity into the now because instead of having to make all the money you need 
to invest in whatever the startup is you are, you're, you're making, like if it was a restaurant, you know, and I've used this example a number of times before, but say you want to open a restaurant while well, you've got to get the, you've got to get the lease of the, of the real estate. You've got to, uh, you got to hire workers. You've got to buy all your pots and pans. You got to buy all your food. You've got to, you know, start paying salaries. You've got to build out. Like it takes a lot of money. Well, you could either say that's a hundred thousand dollars, probably really cheap, but let's just say that's a hundred thousand dollars. You could either try to save that up over the course of four, five, ten years, whatever it is, and then at the end of that, with that cash, go and build this restaurant. Or you could save up for a year or two, get that ten thousand dollars, then borrow against it and go and start the restaurant. And what you've done is you've taken on debt, but you've pulled in that productivity into today. So now you're you're producing. You, you've got this restaurant; it's going. You've got, you know, you're generating revenue, and you're you're paying salaries, and you're paying producers for for food and trans, and you're you're paying for transportation. And so, there's all these things that go into that business that you're now contributing to the economy. So, de- as long as you don't extend yourself so much that you fail, that it's a that's a positive use of of debt, and so you're earning back. You're, 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 you're creating revenues that you can pay that debt off over time and that's okay. But the difference is today we're, we're so indebted across the world that we're, that it's becoming something that is eye-opening. Um, so going back to what we're talking about, uh, I was saying about inflation in the seventies and eighties. Well, back then the debt to GDP ratio was about 30%. And today it's over a hundred percent. So it's just, it's not the same situation. We have gotten so far away from the, having a budget surplus. We've gotten so far away of responsible spending in DC that we have massive deficits that we're running and deficits create inflation and deficits demand inflation because as you run those deficits, you have no choice but to borrow as a country by issuing debt to cover the hole that you're creating with the deficit. And that continues and continues. And as interest rates rise, that deficit gets larger and you have to borrow more. And so I try to remind people that that's kind of where we are and it's not getting any better. And they all know it and they see it. The question is, how long can it go on for? How bad can it be? How bad can it get? A lot of people point to Japan. Uh, Japan has been running huge. You know, they've got debt to GDP that's that's um, over two hundred fifty percent. They've been instituting yield curve control, outright yield curve control, where the Bank of Japan just steps into the market and buying their own treasuries, their own Japanese treasuries for for years now. And so uh, people will point to that and say, "Well, we could do the same thing." It's not really the same. We have a different economy. We have a different demographic. They're a net exporter. We're a net importer. They're just different dynamics. So, but we do have the advantage of being the world reserve currency in the U.S. dollar and having the world reserve asset in the U.S. treasury. And so my colleagues are right that this can go on for a very long time and they probably don't have to worry about it today or tomorrow, but their kids will have to worry about it. And that's my point. Yeah, there's a, the, another favorite quote of mine is that debt doesn't matter until it does. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, you know, I think people point to the higher rates in the 70s and 80s as a reason why today rates can go much higher than they have already gone. But I think part of what you're talking about is is the cost of servicing the debt. Maybe just for the listeners, can can we to touch on that a little bit. Yeah, we can let's we can pull that apart. So basically, look, you, when you look at the when you just take a look at the US government and pretend it's a company. It's not because they can pay they can print their own money, but just let's just pretend it's a company. And so the company has expenses. And so they have mandatory expenses. Pretend it's and if you actually pretend it's like um it's like you. You know, you have mandatory expenses. Say you're a single parent and you've got kids and you're you're working jobs, you're just trying to get by and you're you know, you've got two or maybe three jobs, but you've got these expenses that you have to pay. You've got your mortgage or rent, you've got your car payment, you've got gas for your car, you've got food, you've got clothes for your kids. These are mandatory. You cannot skip on these. You've got to do, you've got to make all these payments. And in order to do that, you've got to make enough money. Well, let's say you're not making enough money. 
let's say that there's a gap there. Well, what do you do? You borrow. You borrow to, to fill that gap on a credit card, right? And so those are that's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. So when you look at the U.S. government and you think about what they spend their money on, well, they spend money on entitlements, which is like Social Security, Medicare, Medi- Medicaid, and all of that. That kind of that all adds up to about four four point two trillion dollars. Okay, then you've got your military, and but th- those entitlements, those are in, signed into legislation. Like that's mandatory, non negotiable. You've got to pay those. Military is the next expense, next biggest expense until this year. We'll get to that, but. Your military is your 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 military expense is is again it's not something it's not like it's lo- signed into legislation that you have to pay these uh these uh these providers the 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 uh the defense contractors but you have these long term contracts with them that you need to pay or else you're going to default on those contracts um so and that's maybe eight hundred billion so now you're at about five trillion dollars you get your interest expense and your debt and this is a you, we're paying right now, we're paying a trillion dollars of interest annually. So it's more than military, but we're getting some back internally. And so that net interest expenses are about 700 billion. So people like to quote the billion dollars or the trillion dollars, sorry, a trillion dollar of, of interest expense that, we, that we've gotten to. That's true. That's a trillion dollars going out the door, but some of it's coming back in. And so that net expense is about 700 billion dollars. These are all kind of your mandatory expenses. Like there's not much you can do about that. Well, add all that up, right? And you're already at about 5.7 trillion dollars. Well, the issue is right now our revenues, our tax revenues are somewhere around 4.2 4.4 trillion. So we're already running a deficit right there. But then you've got all these other expenses that add up to about 400 billion dollars. So our deficit, the amount of money that we're spending over what we're generating in revenue is about $2 trillion this year. And so you're going to see, people may see $1.7 trillion deficit quoted, but when you add back the student loan uh, reversal, which is just accounting from last year, it's actually, we're actually running a $2 trillion deficit. And so that's the issue is we've got that big deficit and we have to continuously then issue bonds in order to meet that margin because there, there's a there's a difference there between what we're making as a country and what we're spending, and so we've got to fill that hole by issuing debt and borrowing from the world. That's essentially what the situation that we're in right now. Yeah, it's it's almost a little bit like you know somebody somebody eating junk food straight for a year and and waking up twelve months later sixty pounds heavier and then being surprised about like well how did this happen how how did I how did I gain all this weight yeah and even worse you know as we have inflation as we run these deficits and the Fed has a rate has been raising rates well the issue the 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 cost to issue more debt to borrow more money. Is rising, and so that's why interest expense has gone from six hundred billion dollars to a trillion dollars, because we're we're spending we, we're spending so much on interest expense on that debt, and as th- that just makes the deficit bigger, so you have to borrow more, and so it's like that that single parent who maxes out that first credit card has to get another credit card, and then maxes out that credit card has to get another credit card, and pretty soon you're looking at a situation where you're now. All your your entire paycheck is going to service the debt on the credit cards. And so eventually we will get to that spot unless something changes. And that's the issue here. Unless we do one of three or actually four things, right? So you've got you've got three main choices. We can either cut spending in DC, austerity, institute austerity and cut spending and close that deficit a little bit. But that's political suicide. Neither party wants to do that. I don't see that happening. The second thing you can do is you can raise taxes. But raising taxes often just, it, it what it does is it disincentivizes and it, it makes it difficult to expand R&D, hiring, new product lines for companies. And so they wind up having less productivity and the companies all added up having less productivity because of higher taxes you get to a point where you have less GDP. And so even though you have higher taxes, it's on higher taxes on less GDP or lower GDP, 
and you get to the same spot. So it doesn't really work. The third thing you can do is just issue more debt, which is what we're doing. But that puts you in the situation that we're in now, where you is- you just keep con- issuing more and more debt and you wake up one day and you're not able to keep up with those debt payments. Well, so what is the solution there? The solution is to allow for and kind of hide perpetual high rates of inflation. So that creates gross domestic product, GDP. It creates productivity in dollars that is higher in a number. But in reality, it's fake because it's just all you've done is created more dollars and created higher productivity with those more dollars. And so you're taxing those dollars and you're getting a bigger tax base, but you're and paying down the debt that you issued years ago on a lower tax base because GDP was lower because the dollars were worth more. Now the dollars are worth less. You can t- you're, you're tax them and, and paying down that debt. And so that's, the, that's what we're looking at now is that we're in a situation where the Fed is talking down. They're saying, we're going to get inflation down to 2%. They're intent on getting inflation down to 2%. Meanwhile, the treasury actually needs inflation higher. The treasury needs inflation up in order to close that deficit, in order to have a higher tax base, in order to be able to have a lower deficit and issue less debt. So where, do, where does it come out? Well, the reality is you need to have that inflation in order to continue this trade. There's the only other options are to reprice the debt, which is not going to happen. Why would we do that? No country, no sovereign that issues debt in its own currency would reprice their debt. They would just, they would just print more currency. They would print more of dollars first and create inflation. So it just doesn't make any sense. So that's either that or you have a a hard serious recession that pulls that pulls down the inflation. But the problem there is it also it blows out your deficits because again you have to keep borrowing to close those deficits and you have lower productivity because you're in a recession and you have higher unemployment and social services. And so you have higher expenditures, lower GDP, lower tax revenue, higher debt. So it's really, it's a really a difficult position that that the central banks have gotten us to. Yeah, and it's a it's a funny thing uh, that I think there's this weird. While inflation is painful for people, it, it does also make the 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 value of the debt that governments have borrowed worth less. You know, when you're devaluing your own money, you're also devaluing devaluing the money that you've already borrowed. So, so it's kind of this weird catch 22 where there, there is a benefit for governments to print and reduce the sort of balance sheet, uh, burden, uh, by, by making it mean less. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned, so there's this thing about devaluing your own debt and, and it, it's important for, uh, for the, for there to be an international market for us treasuries, for other countries to have an appetite to buy U.S. debt, and this is a this is a dynamic that's changing a lot right now because of all these things you've been talking about. And yeah, could you maybe just talk a little bit about about how how that works and why it matters? When we uh, went off the gold standard in in seventy one, Nixon had this brilliant idea to. I'm being sarcastic, but it, the reality is this is what happened. We convinced Saudi Arabia to uh, to trade oil for dollars. And so what that meant is that anybody who was not a net producer of oil in their own country, they had to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, they would have to buy it in dollars. So that created this situation where people, where countries, sovereigns, would then want to hold US dollars. But instead of just holding dollars in a bank, they would buy something that was based in dollars that was generating interest for them. It was giving them a yield. What is that? It's the U.S. Treasury. So they would buy U.S. Treasuries and put those in their reserves. So it became the world reserve, the global reserve asset. And so at the time that they needed to buy something, and whether it was oil or some other cross-border uh, trade, and they needed dollars for that, they would then sell those treasuries, get dollars, and use those dollars. And so that's what how we've been operating all these years, ever since 1971. And so now flash forward, 
you we've gotten to a situation where last year we didn't like Russia invading Ukraine. And so we shut off their access to SWIFT, which is the messaging system that settles cross-border currencies, cross-border currency uh, trades and, uh, and payments. And so uh, we did that. And then we, we froze and seized their U.S. treasuries. Well, that just sent a signal to everybody in the world who's not a close ally that if you, if you cross us, we can commandeer assets and keep you from using them. And so that was kind of a, in my mind, it was a, uh, it was a strategic error. And so we've signaled to the world that the U.S. Treasury may not be the safest assets for you, asset for you to hold in your reserves because you may not have access to them if you do something we don't like. And so now you're hearing about countries such as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa creating something called BRICS. And people are wondering whether they're, this is going to, going to become a, a competing currency for the U.S. dollar. And I don't see it as that. I see it as more as a signal that there are a lot of countries out there that would like to get away from the U.S. dollar standard and not have to use U.S. dollars in cross-border trades. The reality is if they created BRICS, they would all be trading with each other. But how do they trade outside of that? It's, they don't have a very strong leader or one leader or trustworthy uh, head of that group that everybody could trust uh, in order to make that currency viable, even internally. So in my opinion, so I don't see that as being really a, a big threat in the near term, but I do see it as a warning bell, a sign that the world is waking up. And the second warning bell is we're watching treasuries trade higher on the long end of the yield curve. And the reason is the investors around the world are waking up to the fact that, as you said just a minute ago, Scott, that we may not want to be holding these treasuries that are going to be denominated in dollars that are worth way less in just a few years than they were today. And so we need a higher interest rate to be compensated for holding those. That's the issue that we're finding ourselves in now. The question is, how bad is it? And that's where the, the auction from last week, such a dramatically poor auction is yet another red flag and warning bell for the treasury and for the Fed and, and, and what we're doing. So higher rates kind of do two things in with respect to this particular topic. I would say one, they change the risk calculus for other investments, right? All of a sudden, if you can get four or 5% on a government bond, and people love to call this stuff risk-free air quotes for people who are just listening, but as the yield punch is higher, all of a sudden, the, 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 the kind of juicy risk-free return makes you maybe less interested to do something else with your money that might be higher risk. And the other thing is the idea that people have to, when, when we start seeing longer rates punch higher, it, the government is paying that additional expense as their debt grows, right? Because we're, we're talking about two ends of, of debt, of being bought and sold. That's right. That's right. Well, and then, and then you also have to remember that uh, the cost of capital goes up. As rates go up, the cost of capital goes up, which weighs on risk assets. Specifically, uh, stocks are uh, valued using these measures, and so as rates go higher, then the multiples come; they they contract, and so uh, that's why you typically see when yields go up, the uh, this the stock market will come down. So, you know, just like your point, if you're looking for if you're looking for a place to put your capital. And you don't want it at risk. Well, right now, if, it, if you want to buy a, a, a T-bill or a money market, which is invested in T-bills typically, then you're putting your money in something that's pretty darn close to risk-free. And so I don't, you can't call any asset risk-free. I'm, I'm a risk manager. I just, I just don't believe that anything is risk-free. However, I would say that it's, it's barely a non-zero chance that something happens to your your money that's in a treasury uh in a t-bill so because these are maturing in weeks or months at most and so the u.s the u.s is not going to default on its debt that's not my concern that's not moody's concern that's not smp or, or fit's concern it, they don't that's not what they're concerned about they're concerned about a short-term disruption and you not getting paid for a short period of time, which creates a, a cost, a, a, 
a, a an opportunity cost issue for you. Let's say that we do we go into this. Uh, you know, we just had this in in June where the debt ceiling we bump right up against it and we can't issue any more debt. And in fact, we because we can't issue that debt, we default. We can't pay the interest and the principal on debt that's maturing. What if that happens for a day or two? Well, of course, the U.S. is going to figure itself out. It's going to make investors whole on that. But the issue here is that if you're an institution, if you're a hedge fund, and you've, you own treasuries that are maturing and you don't get paid on those, well, often you're using those as collateral. And now it's failed collateral. And so now you have you have collateral that is not good. And so that could pull a string that is, that's pretty negative, right? So that's one thing. You could be depending on that capital to make other investments. And if you don't get that capital back, then you know, you're, you're, you've missed that opportunity. Also, if you don't get that capital back, you're seeing the market trade off and you can't invest in that because your capital's tied up in this soft default. So it's a technical default, call it that. The soft default would be what we're doing every single day, which is perpetual inflation. The technical default would be that, oh, we technically defaulted for a few hours or a day, but then we made everybody whole later. But it still has ramifications in it. So does it make the US a B-rated credit? No. But does it keep it from being AAA? Yes. That's the issue. Yeah, you raise a number of interesting points there. I um, wonder about how other countries that are also selling their own debt, how this cascades out. And do you think the rest of the Western world is sort of sleeping on its own kind of inherent currency risk? Like the debt burden outside of the US, for the most part in the West, I would say is worse. Australia, Japan, UK, Canada, we're further along this road than the US is, and we don't have the luxury of being able to print the world reserve asset. That's the issue. You don't have the ability to print the, the currency. That's the, that's the issue. The issue in, in Europe is that the entirety of Europe is leaning on Germany and their balance sheet. And so at some point, I believe that Germany is going to get fed up with that. They have an internal um, measure. It's called Target 2. And it's a settlement system every night from border uh, cross border uh, settlements, and it just shows. I haven't looked at it in the, in in a little bit, but and virtually every other country, not everyone, but virtually every other country owes Germany a lot, including the ECB itself. We're talking about over a trillion dollars. So the issue also is that there are big parts of Europe that are not energy independent. You know, France has has nuclear reactors, but yeah. And so they still need to get their gas and, and oil and gas from, from abroad. And so that's an issue. The Japan situation is, it's fascinating. It's been going on for a very long time. I wrote all about it in a recent newsletter about abonomics and how this all came about. But, you know, Japan's gotten to the point where they're the largest holder. The Bank of Japan is the largest holder of Japanese treasuries. There's a thing about that. That's just, that's crazy. And yet here we are, we're still, they're still going along. They're still moving along. They're still bumping along. And uh, again, they're different than us. They're a net exporter. We're a net importer. They have different demographics. They have an aging demographic. They have different savings type of uh, of concentration. It's just a different. It's just a different economy than ours. Now that said, they've been doing something that they've been trying to create inflation. They had a huge asset bubble that burst right in the in the late eighties and nineties, and so they they had a lost decade in there. Uh, that's what they call it. And so economically, and so they've been trying desperately to rejuvenate the price increases there and have, have some inflation. They need inflation. They've got so much debt, they need inflation, but it hasn't been happening for them. So it's a, it's a very interesting situation out there. And, and I think at some point, the deflationary forces are going to clash with the inflationary forces and it's just going to collapse. I don't know when. I can't predict that. It's just like, uh, yeah, kind of like your bond. You kind of like your debt statement. It's slowly and then all at once. Yeah, this situation of you know, so all these countries are trying to sell each other some amount of their own debt, which they print out of thin air, and uh, the the market for this is like is is a trust based scenario where like obviously, as a sort of trust is eroded, the the 
the the market for buyers of Japanese debt is shrinking and that that's why they're buying more of their own debt now, right? It's like it reminds me of like Binance creating their own token and selling like people will trade Bitcoin for this thing that they make out of thin air and they collateralize it based on based on air. It's it's the same. Yeah, if you look at Japan, the situation there, Scott, is that while the rest of the world has been raising rates, Japan's been lowering theirs. They've been keeping theirs low. So they've been artificially holding their rates low by instituting what we call yield curve control, where they stand on this, this bond, the 10-year treasury, and they just buy it and buy it and buy it and buy it and buy it to keep it at a certain rate. It was 25 basis points. Then it's 50 basis points. Now they've got the limit at, at 1%. But at the same time, the US was raising their rates from a quarter percent up to two and a half percent to four percent, now over five percent at the same moment. Okay, so if you're in Japan and you you own a Japanese 10-year treasury and you're getting 25 basis points yield on that, and you look across the, the pond and you see that you could buy a US treasury for 4.25%, a 10-year treasury for 4.25% last year, what why would you hold the Japanese? What you would do is you would borrow Japanese dollar or Japanese yen, buy U.S. dollars, buy U.S. treasuries, get the yield, and then hedge yourself out with a forward on the on the currency trade back. That's what you would do, and that's that's called interest rate parity. So what, what does that mean? Well, you're selling your your Japanese treasury and you're buying the U.S. treasury in order to do that. Now, on the other side of that trade. This, is hap- this has been happening so much and so dramatically that you've had some violent moves in the Japanese yen as it collapses. Because remember that if you have, if you have this, this pressure that's built up, it's, it's a manipulation of the market. The central bank, the Japanese central bank, Bank of Japan, is manipulating that market. Well, it creates tension and that tension has to have a release valve. That release valve is the yen. Sell the Japanese treasury sell yen by US dollar. That makes the yen collapse. And so you, we, we've been watching the Bank of Japan step in semi-regularly to shore up their currency. And so on the flip side of that trade, they're selling US treasuries in order to buy, in order to get US dollars to buy yen and then shore up the currency that way. And, and, and so it's a it's a it's a really wild and interesting dynamic that I don't think can go on forever. So the question is, when does Japan, the Bank of Japan, step away and let those yields go to where they should? And that's that's the question. Everybody's waiting to see. There's another dynamic. I mean, the, the entire matrix of all these different systems interplaying is super complex. Another thing I think people don't often appreciate is the central banks can control their own interest rates, but the bond market is still free to decide whether or not they want to buy the the various terms of the debt that's for sale at those rates. And so it's an open market that does on its own. It's not like the central bank can just raise and lower rates. And this is the final say on a certain on a certain outcome. That's right. And so what we what we saw a few weeks ago was that yields started to rise across the board in U.S. treasuries, you know, from the the seven, 10 year the 20, the 30 year, they all, all those yields were going up, meaning bond prices were coming down. Why? Well, as people watched the treasury, the government and the treasury run these deficits that had blown out to where the treasury had to borrow $2 trillion over the course of just a few months, $600 billion over the course of just a few weeks, it freaked the market out. And the, so what happened was the the investors turned into what we call bond vigilantes, where they step back and say, no, 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 We're, we want a better rate than the market is offering right now. They stepped back until those rates rose, right? So the bond prices came down, the rates rose to the point where they would, would they would feel sufficiently compensated for that risk. And so it's called rate premium, and it goes out on the rate curve. The further you go on the, on the curve, the more rate premium you want because it's a longer duration, which means that there's more risk because it's just it's just a longer maturity. That and the bond vigilante term comes from back again, back in uh in the 80s and the 90s, where the market was not pleased and satisfied with where the central bank was taking rates and they did the work for them. And so they moved out on the rate curve say, saying, no way, I, I'm not buying a 30-year treasury or 10-year treasury at the rates that 
are being keyed off of the Fed funds rate. The Fed funds rate needs to go way up. And so they moved off the, those uh, bids until the, the yields got to the price that they would be willing to buy them. And so they were termed uh, bond vigilantes back then. And so they returned. And so that's kind of what the market has been looking at. And that's why that treasury auction that we had last week was so eye-opening and alarming. I want to try to kind of tie this together, asking you sort of a two-part question. We have sort of two really important things going on, I guess, in the context of this conversation. On the one hand, what's happening with the, the, the volume and the cost of servicing the U.S. debt in the United States and how the United States can manage that moving forward. And then part B is what it means for everyone else in the world that is trying to issue and sell their own debt and manage their own inflation. And it's a good, it's a good question. And so nobody really knows how, how this is going to play out, Scott. But what, what I see is that we continue to run these, these large deficits and continue to have to issue, issue just mountains of debt. Uh, and I believe that Unfortunately, the economy is running into a recession. We're going to into a recessionary period. And that only means that those the deficits are going to get bigger because again, if you if a recession is by definition GDP is contracting, which means that your tax receipts are contracting. And at the same time, people are losing their jobs, which means that unemployment costs are going up, social service costs are going costs are going up, which means that your costs are rising. So add those two together, it's simple. Your, your, your uh, deficit rises. And we'll come down a little bit as bonds mature over the course of a year or two into a recession, then you get a better interest rate on, those, on the reissue of, the, of that debt because you're basically, you're washing it from where it was at 5% to now, especially the T-bills. Anything that's under, under three months is going to get quickly uh, repriced to a better interest rate, which lowers your interest expense. Now, that said, your interest expense is still rising because the amount of debt that you have to issue is just larger. And so what do they do? I honestly believe that uh, I don't see a way around the, the Fed and the Treasury stepping in to provide liquidity to the market. If we had any indication of that, this past bond auction, that's, that's what it's saying, is that the liquidity is not going to be there. Again, it was just one auction. We're going to have to watch how the rest of them play out for the rest of the year and see how, how the demand really is. But the reality is it's a, big, it's, a, it's a big red flag that I believe strongly the Fed and the Treasury will at some point have to step back in and provide liquidity. Otherwise, the markets would collapse. Now, the biggest, the biggest problem there is not the equity markets. I don't think the Fed really cares about the equity markets. That just brings down inflation that does the job for them is if you, if you have asset, asset prices come down, if you have asset deflation. They care about the treasury market. And if that gets into trouble, they will provide liquidity, period. There's just no way around it. They have to. Because if that market locks up, just as you just said, it locks up the financial system of the world. Because there are a lot of countries out there that can't issue debt in their own currency. They're issuing debt in US dollars. Then you have the euro dollar market where there's there's dollar denominated debt issued overseas. And so those countries, those banks, those central banks and banks need dollars in order to meet demand for those euro that euro dollar debt. And so what happens? Well, it it just perpetuates where the dollar winds up swallowing other currencies. And so it's kind of a crazy thing. And I I I believe that there will be pain across the world before there's dramatic pain here. But um, it's, as far as systems collapsing or currencies collapsing, going hyper, hyperinflating, but those are smaller countries. Uh, you're, you, we, we will see countries, uh, currencies hyperinflate over the course of the next 10 years. That's my, I fully expect that. You hear every fiat currency is hyperinflating in slow motion. It's one of my other favorite quotes. I mean, we're seeing it in Argentina already, and they're, they're not a small country at all. They're in the middle of an election right now, and one of the leading candidates there is basically just proposed getting rid of their own currency and using the U.S. dollar. I think that a lot of people in Bitcoin, for, for listeners, have a theory that the, the, the next stage of what happens is kind of a survival of the fittest where the, the last money left, or maybe a, a dramatic reduction from the 160-plus fiat currencies we have today down to maybe seven or some massive contraction 
And I think it's just so important for understand for people to understand the mechanics of, of why. And it, and it has so much to do with this international market for the issuance of, of government debt. That's right. And so, and it would be painful, make no mistake about it. And I don't think, again, Scott, I, I do believe that this is unsustainable, what we're doing. The, the manipulation of currency is unsustainable and there will be collapses, there will be calamities. And so, but I do think it takes a very long time for it to, to, to reach the United States. As, as uh, Greg Foss likes to say, the U.S. dollar is the cleanest shirt in the dirt, a pile of dirty laundry. And it's true. Uh, that or maybe the Swiss franc, we'll see. So Greg also uh, loves to say it's 100% certain that, uh, that our money will be debased and worth less in the future. Yeah. yeah and that's really what it call, all comes down to. I actually don't want a, cat, a, you know, a catastrophic event. I don't want the world to, but we don't want that. You do not want chaos, financial chaos. I just want to have something that is so hard and so uh, trustworthy trust list that I don't have to worry about it being manipulated. And that for me is why I'm actually so optimistic because we have Bitcoin. If we didn't have Bitcoin, I'm, I'm not sure. I probably wouldn't be sleeping very well right now. It's a, it, this is a tough environment. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of these conversations, uh, particularly on the economic bent, can have a little bit of a doomer feel to them. But for the most part, I feel a general sense of optimism because, you know, you do feel a confidence the solution is there. This is a great time to pivot the conversation. Let, let's just talk a little bit about Bitcoin a little bit. And how does Bitcoin present an alternative or a solution or a sort of a path through this, in your opinion? Well, you see it now in, uh, in, in countries where you are experiencing hyperinflation or dramatic inflation. They won't call it hyper unless I think it's 50% per month, which is just a ludicrous, you know, unfeeling economist term. But if you're, if you're in one of those countries and you can't get US dollars, you can get Bitcoin. You just need an internet connection and an on-ramp there. So you can, you can get Bitcoin. You're seeing it being adopted in those places. And we've heard the stories of people getting out of Lebanon and Argentina and Venezuela with some or most of their wealth tied up in Bitcoin rather than trying to get out with gold or silver, which can be confiscated at the, uh, at the border. It can be lost. It's difficult to carry, you know, but Bitcoin's pretty easy. And so I think we're going to continue to see that adoption. And I think we're going to continue to see that widespread, especially in these, uh, in these areas that have, that are in serious trouble with their inflation and their uh, central bank manipulation. And then I do see in the future, I don't know how far off, but I do see in the future that uh, that Bitcoin ends up being adopted as some sort of global reserve asset where you can peg currencies to and know that if you can convert your currency into Bitcoin, well, then it stabilized that currency greatly. And I do see that being a uh, path for the future of money, for the future of of uh, re- having a true store of value asset for the world. It's going to be a really interesting thing to watch unfold and play out over the next however many years, 5, 10, 20, where you know, central banks today can still create money out of thin air and use it to buy money that takes actual work to produce. And uh, one of them is going to have a light bulb moment and start buying Bitcoin publicly. And uh, who knows what will happen right after that. Yeah. I mean, what could be worse than creating fake money to buy or usurp real productivity? So that's that's why I do have hope, though, because with Bitcoin, you know that you have security in that asset's value and it, it's anti-inflationary. Maybe as just a final thought, well, how is it anti-inflationary for people who are listening and, and they're like, what is it? Magic, how is magic intermittent money anti-inflationary? The simplest way to put it is that it operates on an algorithm that for the simplest terms, it operates on an algorithm that algorithm that is uh, can't be changed, that it allows for the mining of additional Bitcoin on a very scheduled procession over the next hundred years when the final Bitcoin will be mined and so created. And that schedule is, it's very well stated as opposed to, and it can't be changed, as opposed to the schedule of creation of money and expansion of money supply at central banks, which is not very well stated and it's, it's not controlled. And so as we saw in the pandemic, where we had trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars created out of thin air, injected into the world, into the market, 
that is why everything costs more because of the expansion of money supply and and depositing money directly into people's accounts. And so everything got to be more expensive because there's more dollars around to buy it. And so if there's more dollars around to buy it, then there's more dollars around to buy Bitcoin too. And so if you have Bitcoin, it's not that Bitcoin's price is changing. It's that the dollar's ability to get some is changing. It's diminishing. And so you need more dollars to get some because the constant is Bitcoin. The one that's moving is the dollar. Yeah. The problem faces every country as the step burden mounts and the solution involves devaluing the money that already exists today to pay for the things that we already don't have the money for that we're buying now. And the cost of doing that increases over time with the more money that everybody owes. Well said. Yeah, well said. James, this is awesome. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, your insights. For people who are looking to follow your great content, uh, where, where can they find more of you? Oh, thank you. So, it, well, it was great being here, Scott. I truly appreciate it. Uh, if anybody wants to find what I'm joining on about, I, I'm on Twitter, J- at James Lavish. And uh, that I, I put out a newsletter every week called The Informationist, and it simplifies one financial concept for, for anybody to understand it. And I've got all kinds of people who are who are subscribers, doctors and attorneys and and firemen and research scientists. It doesn't matter, dancers. So everybody, uh, it, it's for anybody. And so it takes just a few minutes to read it every week, and it'll make you smarter. And then I'm I'm the co-managing partner of the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. And so again, that's that's what I'm saying is I'm so optimistic about the future. I'm devoting my working life to this and growing this ecosystem with this fund. And so, uh, but if anybody is who is accredited investor wants more information about that, you can just go to bitcoinopportunity.fund and uh, we'd be happy to send you some materials. Uh, we're still accepting some investors. So that's it. Very cool. Yeah. James gives great interviews. If you're interested to find more of those as well, uh, he's an easy search on YouTube and uh, lot, lots of great, 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 great content and, and ideas. So thank you again for coming on and uh, love to have you again sometime. Awesome. Absolutely. Scott, it was a pleasure and uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 